you, Sharon, so much. Thank you, choir. Thank you, June, everybody, for being willing to do that new song. New songs can be good. That was great. If you have your Bible with you, turn to page, or turn to page. (laughs) Oh, boy. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. The central message of Christianity is not the changed behavior of sinners. It is the forgiveness of sins. There's no sleight of hand whatsoever in what Jesus secures for us and then offers to all who believe through the cross. Doesn't it make you roll your eyes a little bit when you see a commercial for a car dealership and all the cars are under $10,000, so you go to the dealership because they're under $10,000 and you find out that meant they're $9,999.99, right? <laughs> I wish that in the church we would stop thinking of the cross in the same way. No wonder we don't evangelize. No wonder we don't obey the Great Commission. For one thing, we're far too obsessed with our own behavior, trying to secure something we already possess because of God's grace. But I wonder if we also don't think our advertising is dishonest. Those of us that have been part of the body of Christ for a longer time, we come into our faith with such high hopes for how our lives are going to go once we've settled our business with God, but then life hits us in the face and we realize we aren't living up to the standards, we aren't changing at the rate we thought we would be, things aren't working out for us as smoothly as smoothly as we thought they were or maybe as we were told they would be if we just got things in order with God. And What did we believe when we first believed? What made us come? What made us believe on Jesus? Did we think the gospel was the way to the good life through its what we thought was its focus on moral improvement? Or did we hear about the forgiveness of sins, that Christianity, salvation, was about God's Son reconciling you forever to His Father and to your Father? I think we live, we tend to live, we don't talk like this. We don't say this. It's in our semantics. You can hear it. But I think we live like this is what the gospel is actually saying to us, to everyone. You can have eternal life with God forever as long as you live up to the standard and don't mess up too bad from here on out. If you measure up, then you get in. Well, No matter how much we want it to be that way, That's not the way it is. To all of you who believe in Jesus Christ this morning, to all of you that God willing will by the time we're done, your sins are actually forgiven. It's finished. The letter of Hebrews showed its hand in the opening paragraph of chapter 1. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of of God the Father. The whole letter is just an extended explanation of the fact that purification for sins has been made forever 
for all who believe. That's what these believers that he was writing to needed to hear in the midst of their lives, in the midst of their circumstances, more than anything else. And this living word speaks the very same word for the same reasons to you and I in this place, in Moundsville, West Virginia, on Sunday, October 20th, 2019, this morning. The word speaks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us to hear about your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done, what he has accomplished. And Father, I pray with all of my heart that you would open every single ear, every single soul to hear this text this morning. I lift up every person in the room, Father, including myself, asking you to help us believe and understand this passage. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first five verses to you of Hebrews chapter 9. He says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Again, that's what the Ten Commandments were called. The law and the covenant were inseparable, right? The Ten Commandments were the tablets of the covenant. So they can't be separated. If one is ended, the other is ended. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the point of those first few verses is not to give an extended lesson on the regulations for worship in the earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle. So I won't be doing that in my sermon either. What we need to take from this first paragraph is its purpose in this section. The author wants to show us the level of detail and preparation, and ritual, and ceremony that was present under the old covenant sacrificial system. All right, let's look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. So the Holy Spirit of God was present during the time of the old covenant sacrificial system and his purpose was to indicate something specific about the old covenant sacrificial system that as long as it is in force, the way into the presence of God is not available. Its sacrifices did not cleanse people enough to get them close to 
God. That's what the first section where the priests would go in to perform their ritual duties was symbolic of the present age in which they lived that was characterized by separation from God. That's why there was literal separation between the first and second sections in the tabernacle to symbolize the fact that there was spiritual separation that remained in spite of the sacrifices between God and the worshipers. Because under that arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices that were offered, they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They weren't holy enough to do that. They dealt only with food and drink and various washings, as he says, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, the time when Jesus would come and offer the sacrificial gift that would be holy enough to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But prior to that, which is what he's talking about, is what he's trying to show, the system that was in place only made you clean enough on the outside to perform ritual duties in the way God prescribed. That does not draw people close to God. It's not indicative of a relationship. It amplifies the fact that there is separation. It reminds you of the fact all the time that something's wrong. That even in spite of this, something is not perfected yet. It's not quite right. It's not good enough. It invites you close, but it holds you at arm's length. Every ritual performed under the Old Covenant had the built-in reminder from the Holy Spirit. So it was deliberate. It wasn't just you might be able to see it, but it was deliberately there to indicate that what they needed to actually be forgiven and get close to God was not being provided by what they were doing. That is what was indicated by the system. You are not actually clean. You can't actually come close to God. And dealing with that is where the text goes from here. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the point of the first 14 verses is to show that the priesthood of Jesus does purify our conscience from dead works, ritual duties that had no power to forgive sins or cleanse consciences, things that simply make you clean on the outside so that we may serve the living God. Therefore, in verse 15, for that reason, Jesus is not simply another high priest in the same arrangement. He is the mediator of a whole new covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ is powerful. That is the point 
of this text. And he mediates now in this day and age for us this new covenant so that, the text says, those who are called into it by his grace may actually receive what it promises by his merit, not their own, by his blood, not the blood of something insufficient, an eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, a sacrifice now has been offered up that actually does redeem them from the transgressions they committed under the terms of that old covenant. The death of Jesus Christ actually redeems sinners from their disobedience to God's law. It actually does it. The old covenant sacrificial system indicated that they were not actually forgiven by the blood of of bulls and goats, meaning their consciences were never clean. They had no right to be clean because their sins weren't actually forgiven. But the new covenant sacrificial system in which Jesus Christ is the high priest indicates that all God's people now are actually forgiven of our sins, meaning our consciences have every right to feel clean and should feel clean. Look at 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So verses 16 and 17, notice how tight his argument is here. Verses 16 and 17 reveal that there was a will attached to the new covenant. The death of Jesus, the one who made the will has to happen for what the will promised to take effect. Therefore, in verse 18, since wills need a promise or need the death of something to take effect, not even the first covenant was made without a will. In other words, it also had promises in it that would only take effect if blood was shed. Verses 19 to 20 reveal the word for that the instructions in that covenant to Moses to sprinkle the book and the people with blood is what inaugurated the old covenant. So the blood of the old covenant was the blood of calves and goats. Furthermore, in verse 21, blood was even sprinkled on the tent and all the vessels used in worship. In verse 22, the old covenant was covered in blood, but it wasn't the blood of Jesus. And so the point in all this is to show this principle from God that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the blood shed under the old covenant did not forgive sins, It simply prophesied that for sins to ever be forgiven, there would have to be blood offered up to do it. It would just have to be better blood than the blood of bulls and goats. Look at the text. Look look at 23. Look at the way it reads. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, the actual things, not the copies or the shadows, with better sacrifices than these. For... Christ has entered, 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That sentence is loaded. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, since without the shedding of his blood, there's no, or shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins in verse 22. Thus, in verse 23, even the copies had to be purified with blood through these rites, these animal sacrifices. God wouldn't even talk or hint at forgiving sins unless blood was present. And yet, for all the blood that was shed under the old covenant rites, for all the work that was being done, the obedience that was taking place, sins were not actually being forgiven. Consciences were not being cleared, which mean God was not receiving the kind of worship from his people that he desired. So it remained necessary for a better sacrifice to be sprinkled on the heavenly things that were in heaven in the actual presence of God because that's what the ones on earth were copying or talking about was that there was this holy place in heaven where blood was needed but it was happening here. It wasn't happening there. Uh, imagine the blood of animals being sufficient to cover sins in heaven in the actual presence of God. This is the explanation of the necessity of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. For, in verse 24, Jesus entered not into the tabernacle or the temple, the holy places made with hands, copies of the true things to offer his sacrifice, but into heaven itself to appear before the very presence of God, the actual presence of God on our behalf. The quality of his sacrifice was so superior to that of bulls and goats that it was not only unnecessary for him to enter the tabernacle to offer it in verse 24, but in verse 25 it was also unnecessary for him to keep offering up his sacrifice repeatedly like the other high priests had to every year and with blood that wasn't even theirs. Because if Jesus had to keep offering up sacrifices for sin, meaning, or meaning then in the quality of his sacrifice is no better than any other priest, that'd be the only reason to have to keep offering it. If he had to keep doing that in verse 26... He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Why? Why is that? Because even the people in his covenant don't stop sinning. You see that? Right? It's, 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 there's not a one-time sacrifice because the people in the new covenant don't sin. There's a one-time sacrifice because the quality of that sacrifice was sufficient to cover all of the sin past, present, and future of everyone in the covenant. The new covenant does not mean that the people in it don't sin anymore. 
we know from the previous chapter it means that God no longer holds their sin against them and kicks them out of the covenant people because they do it. Beloved, the sacrifice of Jesus is always required for us, but it was so potent and sufficient to cover all our sin, past, present, and future, that it only needed to be literally and physically offered up once and for all. When it happened at the end of the ages, that's what the cross was. It was the end of the ages. We are living in like this little period before he returns now. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That, beloved, is the blood of the new covenant. We live in the last days, which are days of grace. And in verses 27 and 28, just as man is appointed to die once and then face judgment, Jesus was offered up as a sacrifice by dying one time to bear the sins of many so that when he returns, it won't be to deal with sin. It won't be, that is, it won't be to die again or keep dying every couple thousand years as needed. It will be to save those who have been eagerly waiting for him. Do you notice the difference there between the people in the front part of the chapter under the old covenant that couldn't even get close, that didn't have clean consciences, that lived in only fear of not messing up, to now you actually want him to show up and you want to see him face to face. What happened? Did they improve? Did they get better? No. A sacrifice happened that is sufficient to accomplish our desire to see him with our own eyes. That is what the blood of Jesus does for sinners who believe on him as their savior. Now I wonder, I wonder if in our day and age of performance-driven Christianity, that's all it's about. That's all it's about, us, our behavior. It's it's us and our behavior. That's God calling. He wants you to listen. (laughs) This text is about the extent of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus provided by shedding his blood at the cross. But it isn't only that. It's not just about the math. It's not just about the fact that sins get forgiven, as amazing as that is. For those of you, think about this for a minute. For those of you who are married, have you ever had a fight or an argument with your spouse and you go to bed angry, which is a sin. You should never do that. You should never go to bed angry, especially at your spouse. But we do. So you get up the next morning and it's it's just weird and it's just cold. You know what I mean? And you're not talking to each other. Maybe you won't even look at each other. Now, what is it that we really need in that moment what am i burdened when i am burdened by the guilt of my part in a fight that has separated me from my wife what is it that i really want i want my wife back i don't want math i want my wife back right it's forgiven it's all right i I was wrong let's go on about our day That's not the same thing as kissing each other and being reconciled to one another again. It's not the same thing. Hearing 
I accept your apology, is not the same as being welcomed back into the relationship with a smile and a kiss and joy and happiness. We all understand to some degree the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us our sins. But beloved, he also died on the cross to cleanse our consciences of the guilt we feel because of our sin. We don't talk about that. We think it's right and holy to feel guilty. It's an offense to the cross. Guilt that would prevent us from thinking we could come close. He died so we wouldn't have that anymore. Now why is that? Why does God care whether or not I have a clean conscience? Just think about that for a minute. Because he does My goodness, God cares that my conscience would be clean. Why? Because he wants me close to him. He wants me to come back to the table. He wants me to know that I'm welcomed there. I mean, I, I don't, that might be the only thing in my parenting that I'm trying to do really well is when they get in trouble, like, it doesn't last. Come back. Come back. He wants me to know that I'm welcome close to him. Now, I want you to think about the Bible. Jesus, remember Jesus speaking in John 4 of the days he brought into the world as the time when the true worshipers will worship his Father in spirit and in truth? Beloved, true worship in spirit and in truth the kind of worship that God is seeking requires a clean conscience. That's why God was seeking it in John 4, because it didn't exist, because Jesus hadn't died yet. There was nobody worshiping him with a clean conscience. All there was was a group of people trying to live holy enough for him to accept them. That sound familiar? So Jesus offered up his life to give us that. You see how Jesus, the cross, doesn't just show his love for us, but his love for his Father. Father, I want you to have what you're seeking. Let me buy it with my blood. God moved in Christ to make it so that I could stand before his blazing holiness, which will never change without guilt. He didn't die and offer all that up so that I would always really deep down feel like there's something missing. We, we bank on, that's how we control each other. We, we try to, we, we want to suppress anybody that has the audacity to not feel guilty anymore in the church. Believer, you have every right to feel clean all the time. Regardless of the week you've had, or the year you've had, or the day you've had, or how you responded in that situation the other day, when you know you should have responded differently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has taken away all my sin and all my guilt forever. We say we believe that. We don't practice it. I can go boldly to the throne of grace, which this same letter has already argued for me to do in repentance because my high priest is always there. 
These are the terms of a covenant. That's what we're talking about here. When we teach or even imply, even imply that something, anything, anything needs to be added to the sacrifice of Jesus for me to be forgiven, we are trampling the blood of Jesus under our feet and demeaning the quality and sufficiency of his sacrifice. Jesus' blood is always able to reach beyond my transgressions and beyond my works to forgive me completely of both what I have done and what I have not done that I should have done or have done wrongly. If that's not true, if his blood doesn't cover all those things, no one will be saved. This audience is drifting away from Jesus because they think something more then the blood of Jesus is needed to provide their forgiveness, to actually really secure their salvation. And we repeat that grievous error every time we require more from ourselves or anyone else than the blood of Jesus to stand forgiven and accepted before God. You attach nothing to the offer of forgiveness in Christ. Nothing, not ever. Why? Because once for all. These believers are ready to go back to all the rituals, all the ceremony. Why? So that they could feel something inside that Christ had already purchased their right to feel. We believe our consciences can only be made clean through work. Beloved, that's unbelief in the gospel. That's not how you cleanse your conscience, by getting busy. And getting things done. Now most books you're going to read by every author. Is that if you want the blessed life. You want the extraordinary life. You want the secret special life. That only the, 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 the good Christians get. You're going to have to do these. And this and that and this. Now Jesus will be in the background. you know, Or it might not get published by a Christian publisher. But it probably will because it will sell. But, but remember. If it, I mean getting, getting saved by Jesus Christ through his blood. Is not really that you know. It's not everything. If you want the good life, the blessed life, your best life now, all that nonsense, then you have to do these things. You see what that does to the blood of Jesus? And Christians just eat it up. Why? Because we're just like them. Like we don't feel a clean conscience. We don't feel accepted in the beloved. We don't feel redeemed. We don't feel forgiven. And when our flesh feels that, you know what our flesh does? It doesn't run to Christ. That's why Hebrews is here. That's why the New Testament is here. That's why the Bible is here. Because we come from the Garden of Eden. So we don't default to grace. We default to work. We wanted to self-identify. That's what the Garden was. I believe myself rather than God. So I'm going to eat this fruit. It looks good to me. It seems right to me. We've been doing it ever since. We stand in this beautiful paradise provided for us by Christ where everything is bought and paid for by his blood. You need to bring no money, no works, nothing to have that paradise. And we stand to the side and say, yeah, but I, I, just, I just don't feel it. I don't feel right. I mean, I still have things in my life that aren't right that I need to fix. And I, I need to check this box off and I need to do this and I need to do that. And I need to do this because I want God's blessing. You have it. Stop. Believing that by upping one's performance, we can become righteous is the pathway to destruction. 
That's what all the warnings in Hebrews are there for. Why we got to listen to the word of God. You got to listen to the word of God. The warnings aren't here to make you doubt your salvation because you struggle with sin. Of course, we would turn Hebrews into that because it's other messages far too frightening to my need to secure my own salvation. It's been secured for you. Rest in it. No, 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 no. I can't live by faith. I got to live by sight. That's what the Bible says. No, it doesn't. It says the opposite. Every warning is here to make us see that if we turn from trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, if we turn from that to the dead works, you see that? The dead works of our performance, of ritual, of ceremony, to look and then feel Christian, we're showing that we don't actually believe in Jesus at all, which means we'll lose our souls if we don't repent and get saved. There is salvation in no other but Jesus, including you and I. Aren't we supposed to bear fruits in keeping with repentance? Yes. That's why Jesus gave you his Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Because something is required of us that we cannot perform out of our own spirits. Bearing fruit that is worthy of what Christ has done for us is not possible from my spirit. That's why I have the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit in me that God requires of his children. None of us gets to decide how much fruit that is. Do you know that? Or what fruit or how often it's produced or how much. Why does everybody want it to be at least partly on us? I've never understood why people even ask those questions and downplay grace. People, you start talking about grace, people get scared. Somebody's got to put in the check and balance. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, let's not get off the rails here. The blood of Jesus isn't that good. Or should they just say it? How confident must you be in your own performance? Proving you're authentic, that you can hold like something still needs to be done over anybody else's head. How confident do you, how holy are you that like you feel comfortable doing that? Who among us honestly thinks, honestly in their heart of hearts thinks that if it isn't all grace, they're still getting in. But the Bible says I have to, yeah, okay. Are you? Are you doing everything the Bible commands you to do perfectly all the time? Because if you aren't, you should be quiet. Right? Like, like believers have the Holy Spirit. In this covenant, we aren't telling each other constantly, know the Lord. Do you know why? Because everybody in it knows him. They're saved. Remember chapter 8? That's not how we talk to one another. That's not how we build one another up. That's not how we restore each other in a spirit of gentleness by holding things over each other's heads that we're not doing rightly. I mean, that, that's, that's the deal. Are you living perfectly enough right now to get in today? Say, no, I'm not living perfectly. Then what are you talking about? What do you, who, how, how small do you think God is? He didn't take the blood of bulls and goats. He's not going to take the blood of your sweat and effort doing things on the outside that you think make you clean. None of that will stand in heaven 
before the heavenly things. There's one thing existing before God the Father that he will accept and forgive people of their sins. And it's the blood of his son. Not the blood, sweat, and tears of his people. Why would we preach anything but the gospel if we actually believed it? How can anyone ever have assurance in that system apart from looking to their own works? That's what they were doing that was causing them to drift away. Do we see the text? Why all the detail? Why all the argument? Again, because they were actually thinking, if I go back to a system where I offer rituals, I mean, it just feels cleaner. It feels better, doesn't it? The more formal it, the more formal something is, the better we feel about it. It just feels more holy, feels more righteous. We started naked in a garden with one rule. How stuffy do we really think God is? He likes loud, crashing symbols. And he's the holy one. Right? You, put, you put a symbol in most church, people be like, whoa, whoa, this is a holy place. Then it should be loud. No, we're not buying a drum set. That's not what I meant. All right? Not right now, anyway. No, don't, don't, don't miss the forest for the trees here, please. I mean, that, you understand that kind of thinking, that never-enoughness? It has nothing to do with self-esteem. But that, that sense of never-enoughness, there's still more. Yes, but I must blank, right? It fuels a guilty conscience. That sense of never enoughness. Like, it's like every, it's like every, all publishing and most conferences are built on you feeling that way. That's what keeps us coming back to them. We got to get our fix of, yeah, but if you really love the Lord, what? One thing makes the conscience clean. That sense of never enoughness, according to the Bible, will not lead to works that glorify God. For it is grace that teaches us how to live godly lives. Titus 2, 11 and 12. It's grace that teaches us to live godly lives. It's standing under the constant waterfall of your sins are forgiven. That's how you're going to live a holy life. But you living a holy life is not what will get you into heaven. You believing in Jesus is what will get you into heaven. It's this message, the, the matchless blood of Jesus that cleanses the conscience from dead works so that we might actually serve the living God. The living God isn't served by dead works that just make us look clean on the outside. You can wear the right clothes and look clean on the outside. That's how easy it is. That's how thin it is. What We judge people for the clothes they wear. We do not have the right to make each other feel like we need more than the blood of Jesus to receive God's eternal blessing. Let it not even be hinted at here. Yes, God has saved me, but if I want to be blessed by him, now I have to stop it. It's antichrist. Stop it. It's antichrist. We are not meant to draw near to God with a guilty conscience that prohibits us from worship. Right? It's, it's, 
It's not more holy to always feel guilt, to always feel like there's more that needs to be done, not in light of the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Right? Don't, don't just ask for forgiveness when you sin. Ask for a clean conscience when you sin. Jesus died to give you both. I wish we would just say out loud what we really mean sometimes, as if God doesn't know anyway. Lord, forgive me of my sin, but make sure I feel horrible about it for another 10 years. Are you saying that the things we do don't merit guilt? Absolutely they do. Absolutely what we do merits guilt. We are guilty people. We should absolutely feel guilt. But here's the thing. Christ died. Christ died. And God raised him from the dead. And even though we should... We shouldn't. That's the gospel. You ever thought maybe people come into the church and they leave it so quickly because our message is you don't quite measure up yet. Right? You don't do this that way. You don't do this that way. You don't do this that way. And really, that's what Christians do. So if you aren't going to fall in line, this really isn't for you. We always wonder like, how do we how do we grow our church? How do we get it bigger? Well, I don't know, preach the gospel maybe. And just let Christ build his church, which he said he was going to do. We, we simultaneously say, we want you to come to our church. But what we really mean inside is, and become exactly like us or you're not welcome there. Right? Yeah. It should be a place where guilty people that should be condemned realize amazingly that they've been forgiven and they they enjoy their salvation rather than I've got this now let me hold it over your head and make sure you get it too that's a culture that's a culture that gets in and gets set and we can't see it because we're in it we're inoculated to it If, if, if our message isn't drawing the same people that the message of Jesus did are we preaching the same message? His blood has bought a clean conscience for us. Embrace it. Live in it. His blood has done all that is necessary for sinful people to worship God without fear because they're covered in his saving covenant love. It's not that, it's not that sins aren't taken seriously there. They were addressed by the death of Jesus. That's the foundation of the joy, not God relaxing his standard, but the fact that God would never relax his standard, so he sent his son so that you and I could meet it through him. Christian, you should feel clean. You should feel clean. The Holy Spirit inside of us is producing his fruit in us, indicating to us that through this covenant, our sins are actually forgiven and our consciences have every right to feel clean. The new covenant is not a covenant of neurotic, guilty, self-absorbed people trying their best to live up to what Jesus has done for them. You all know that weirdness of buying somebody dinner and they won't accept it. It's awkward to accept grace. So again, I know we said it before. Okay, all right, fine. I'll let you pay for dinner. Let me get the tip. I got to do something here. I can't just receive charity. Right? I can't. It's not right. Oh my gosh. It's, 
That's what we think. It's not right to just receive without doing something. It's woven into our DNA. You see, we're building our DNA to reject the gospel, not to embrace it. This is a covenant of completely forgiven sins, clean consciences, and therefore righteousness and peace and joy. God does not want his people to have guilty consciences. I mean, we, we, we switched covenants for that. To, to, the guilty conscience will, will coax you. Your flesh will make you feel like you're more holy because you have it. And look, I, I, how do you not have a guilty conscience? I mean, I, I, I don't feel what I'm telling you to feel. Like, I need this text as much as you need this text. Because I don't know how you wash away the guilt of your past. Like the recent past, not just the old past. How do you wash it away? Do you hear the sin in my question? I can't wash it away. But the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, says it's washed away. I should believe him. So why don't we just enjoy this welfare and stop acting like we worked for it? Let, let, let me, I, I know where, let me tell you a quick story. Um, 2008, 2007, about 12 years ago, um, we lived in Union City. I, I'm not going to cry through this story. It's so annoying. Just give me a second. Let me breathe here. All right. So... About 12 years ago, we live in Union City, Ohio. Things are not going well. Uh, I was there as a, I was another elder in the church. I was the, the pastor for worship. I led the worship there. and um, We had moved. It, it didn't make any sense to move, none. But again, I, I wanted to do the right thing so bad. And I had it in my head that I was at that point in my life where ministry had failed miserably because I wasn't good enough to do it. I wasn't righteous enough. And I know there are qualifications. I'm not denying that. I'm saying in my heart of hearts, I just thought, you have no business. So I was like, but if I move far away and if I make it hard on myself where I have to live by faith and make less money, that would, you see, I was trying, I was like, if I do that, then God will bless me. Then everything will go right. Do Do you hear all that? Right? We still think like that. If I just step out on faith, usually that means if I just justify myself by my actions, God will bless me and everything will be better. And it wasn't better. I moved out there on faith with no job and I couldn't find one. Right? I, the, the church I was a part of was very small. They, did, it, they didn't have the ability to support more than one pastor. And they didn't bring me out there under the pretense that they would do so. They didn't, they didn't do anything wrong. I just thought I, I should go. I should go out there. I, I have to. Right, So all that, I couldn't find work. It got to the point where I was applying at Pizza Hut and McDonald's and Rite Aid. and Not because there's anything wrong with working in those places, but when you're a father and a husband, you, you need to provide for your family. See, God never calls you to stop providing for your family. Right? So was, I was just in a mess. Right? I was in a mess. And I could not get a job. I could not get a job. I was trying everywhere to get a job. When we moved, because of the transition, we were eligible because of my income or lack thereof of food stamps. So we got groceries with food stamps for a while. Well, when I moved, the, there was a gap in the benefit. 
because I, I couldn't get to working again and I, all these different things. And so we went about three months with no grocery money. And if the church where we were had not provided for it, we never went hungry. I didn't say we went hungry. We never did. We never did. But I wasn't drawing enough income to support my family. So lo and behold, somehow, one day I, I, I call in to, to go back to, you know, can we get this fixed and all that stuff? And I find out that they've corrected whatever was wrong on my card or the food stamp card. And I got in one day like $2,300 on our food card. Okay? Now, forget the merits of it. Just stop for a minute. All right? I want to tell you something. I have never had more joy at the grocery store in my life. I, we, 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 our coverage were not full, right? I mean, I, I didn't have any right to receive that gift, none. But so help me, going through the aisles with my little kids and my wife, can we get this cereal? Heck yeah, throw it in the cart, man. We're just buying cereal. We're just, I, bought, I bought a bunch of 12 packs of Fanta and Diet Right that you could never drink responsibly in any short amount of time just because the 12 packs were on sale. So load, go get another cart, load them up. We enjoyed it so much. We ended up buying for the, the preaching pastor. I knew they liked fresh pineapple because we talked about it. We bought them a mess of fresh pineapple and groceries for them because we were so happy and so excited. Because it was just, it was just like, what is this? What is this gift? And when I went to pay, I didn't feel embarrassed. You always feel embarrassed when you're paying with food stamps because people will not cut you a break. The minute you put out that card, you're a lazy bum that doesn't want to work, right? So you just, you're always embarrassed. Like here, please don't say it out loud. Is that the snap card? Yes. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Thank you. We couldn't have done this transaction if you didn't yell it for everybody in the back to hear. And I just paid. I mean, we, and, and I'm beloved somewhere in that. We were meant to enjoy what the sacrifice of Jesus provides before we ever feel like we've done enough to merit it. Enjoy it. That's the fruit of faith in him. Enjoying what he's done for you. Because he's done it all. And look, you're, you're never going to live well enough for long enough for it to not be a gift to you. So stop trying to earn it. It was not a paycheck. It was a grant. It was not a loan. Right? Just for a minute. Just, just don't qualify. Just smell the roses and enjoy it. The Spirit's in you. You're not going to go off the rails. The Spirit is stronger than that. Enjoy it. Breathe it in. It, it's all paid for. It's all forgiven. It's all finished. All of it. To all who believe your sins are actually forgiven. It's gone. They're covered. They're purified. They're put away. Forgiven. This is how God describes our sin now, believer. Not because of what we have done or will do, but all and only because of what his son has done and will do forever. Be our high priest. You never have to hang your head in shame when you come to him. Ever. I mean, my goodness, just think about it. The command to come boldly to the throne of grace has no parentheses, no caveats. Why? Because the blood of Jesus is more powerful than whatever awful, horrible thing you've done. 
It's not because what we've done isn't worthy of shame, but because Jesus bore our shame on himself when he died for us. You see, he, he, he bore your shame. Why are you still bearing it? Why? It's been addressed. It's been met. It's over. This once-for-all sacrifice doesn't just cover my past. It covers my present, and it covers my future. It's eternal. It's always there. He is always there. This is the source of my hope, my confidence, my assurance, my salvation, the blood of Jesus for me. For all who believe, all our sins are stones at the bottom of his ocean. And all our filthy stains have been washed away. Recompense is made for the guilty and the shamed. For eternity is gained in the arms of the slain. John Mark McMillan, so come eat. You come drink forever at God's table. All of you who believe or will believe on him as Savior. The front will be open for any of you that want to pray, any of you that want to join our church, any of you that want to follow the Lord Jesus in baptism. I hope you believe on him. If you do not, you may right now where you are. No strings attached, no fine print. Believe on him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for this text, what your son has accomplished and what he's saying to us. And Lord, may we now believe that text. I ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ.